y'all come on in, take your shoes off, sit on down. Y'all listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. For this episode of In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, we get a special tour inside and out of the Frederick Douglass House in Washington, D.C. And if you didn't know, Frederick Douglass was born a slave in the early 1800s, was secretly educated by the wife of one of his white masters, escaped with the assistance of Anna Murray in 1838, with whom he would later enter into marriage, and would go on to become a writer, preacher, abolitionist leader, accomplished violinist, and eventual advisor and friend to President Abraham Lincoln. So let's meet our guide, curator Kamel McLaren, and have a look around. My name is uh, Kamel McLaren, curator here at the Frederick Douglass National Historic Site. Uh, I've been working here for about uh, 11 years. Uh, started out as a park ranger as I was pursuing my uh, doctorate or PhD at Howard University. I um, was asked to, or tasked uh, to do a tour accuracy report before the house reopened in 2007. So as a graduate student, um, did a lot of research uh, on the home as well as into Frederick Douglass. And then I uh, pretty much shadowed and um, was mentored by the former curator. And her name was Kathy Ingram and she pretty much uh, mentored me. And then when she retired, I became the uh, site's curator. Do you remember when you first got interested in Mr. Douglass? Oh, uh, yes, I can remember it just like yesterday. Um, I was about 13 years old. I had uh, already read the narrative. Which is not easy reading. No, <laughs> and I had, was reading it on my own, but one day my dad uh, came to me uh, in my room and he handed me another uh, brand new copy of the narrative as well as The Miseducation of the Negro from Carter G. Woodson. And so it was as if it was like my coming of age moment mm-hmm. at that time. And he said, you need to read these two texts to really sort of broaden your worldview and see your standing in, in society. So as a 13-year-old, how does that affect your mind? It was definitely uh, transformative in many ways. Um, getting those two books and reading them in the uh, order of the Frederick Douglass's narrative and then looking at Carter G. Woodson's Miseducation, it really shows me that history is truly fluid at that time. And in terms of my thinking, it just broadened my, uh, my whole worldview in terms of looking at sort of the, the African-American experience in the United States. Reading those two books, mm-hmm. it sort of gave me sort of the intellectual hunger to you know want to read more, and it probably uh, placed me on the trajectory where I'm at today mm-hmm. in many ways, in terms of a modern context. But in terms of looking at this idea to modernity in terms of mm-hmm. you know how these, these books really uh, compare, a lot of the issues that were being brought out in those books could be uh, argued, you know, some of the things that uh, the nation is still grappling with today. So. You said you're, this is your father yes. who instilled this in you? Yes. Did he get to see you become to this position? Unfortunately, he didn't. He oh, actually no. uh, passed away when I was uh, receiving my master's uh, degree, uh, and I basically uh, sort of made a vow to him, you know, sort of, you know, sort of indirectly to, mm-hmm. to want to go and pursue my Ph.D. and get my uh, Ph.D. in history and uh, museum studies. But he at least saw you were on the, the path. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Frederick Douglass, 
uh, was born on a plantation in Talbot County, Maryland. Uh, we now know in 1818. Mm -hmm. uh, he didn't even know the actual uh, birth the date, uh, didn't even know the actual birth the date or year. He was off by one year. Uh, he thought he was born in 1817, but come to find out looking at, you I mean, several years later, uh, as history can be hindsight in many ways, you were able to go back and look at the, the actual planter's records, so the plantation records, and he was born Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey, February 1818, but the date was never known. Mm -hmm. And what we find is he actually gave his birthday Valentine's Day. And uh, from that point on, uh, he you know, sort of cherished that day. It's surprising that he actually passed away the same month, you know, February 20th, 1895, mm -hmm. right here um, in the foyer of his last and final home, which was Cedar Hill. The fact that he didn't know his birth date, remember that was one of the injustices that he felt that was denied to blacks at that time, that they couldn't even know their own birthday. I think he compared it to a horse not knowing. I think, in essence, in terms of Douglas's feeling, he did see that as a truly injustice of not knowing the date and year that a person's born. And it seems like he was always robbed of, of knowing that. And that's so why he was always on this quest of figuring out who he truly was. And I, th I think that also probably uh, spurred him to uh, become a change agent in many ways. Now, he knew his mother. Yes. Right. And his father, that was in question, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Did they ever firmly establish who his father no, was? No, he always suspected, uh, so historians suspect that his father definitely was a white man. But Douglas, in a, one speech, thought his, his act, he could have been the son of the Colonel Lloyd which owned the plantation, but we think it was another gentleman. Yes. Mm -hmm. Has there been any effort to find the descendants of the, was it Colonel Lloyd, and see, like they did with Sally Hemings' family? Yes. And, uh, in a modern context, yes, a lot of uh, Mr. Douglas's uh, ancestors do come back uh, to the site. They're actually known as the Baileys, right? You know, he changed his name from Frederick uh, Augustus, what, from Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey to Frederick Johnson and then to Frederick Douglass. Mm -hmm. So you do have a lot of Baileys that come back to the site, but he has a great, great, great grandkids, uh, particularly Kenneth Morris and his mother actually um, started the uh, Frederick Douglass Foundation, and they actually are the true descendants that we know of. And uh, so this being his final home, uh, he actually purchased this home in 1877 for a whopping $6,700. Uh, which is equivalent to about $1.3 million in wow. today's time. So Mr. Douglas was already well established financially. He owned uh, several different properties throughout the district, uh, as far as Baltimore to Tacoma Park, Washington. Mm -hmm. And uh, this home here really uh, captures the, the essence of Mr. Douglas's life coming full circle in many ways. He was born on a rustic plantation, and his final home is sort of out away from the city, in this rustic um, sort of lush area, and Mr. Douglas really took advantage of the property in, in that vein. Now, he lived here with his second wife? Is that his correct? first wife. Matter of fact, the home was pretty much a symbolic gift to his first wife, Miss Anna Murray Douglas. Mm -hmm. And then uh, she would actually pass away here in 1882 after suffering her final stroke. And then um, Mr. Douglas remarried in 1883-84 to Miss Helen Pitts Douglas. When you come into the home, you really see a man that really um, evolved over time. Uh, you really see a true, consummate Victorian gentleman. 
He's also a Victorian farmer. This is a, actually a working farm, the property itself is a working farm, which captures uh, Douglas's uh, true entombment uh, with nature. Uh, he often engaged with nature uh, in and around on this property. Uh, you're talking about 15 acres of land. Mm -hmm. uh, he planted food stuff uh, here on the property. Um, he had a lot of uh, livestock here on, on the property. What were some of like the, the highlights or some of the distinguishing characteristics of Victorian life that he attached himself to? Uh, right down to his art, um, his furnishings uh, here in the, in the home, uh, right down to the way people uh, carry themselves in, in their informal and formal spaces. Uh, so as we're stepping into this East Parlor, we're talking more of a formal space. So if you didn't know Mr. Douglas on a personal level, you would have been entertained in here. So one pastime would have been this, this checkerboard that you see here. Uh, Mr. Douglas often played uh, checkers uh, with uh, family and friends. Uh, he loved to sit down uh, in these chairs with his uh, guest, sort of talking about the latest gossip, uh, the politics of the time. Yes. If you don't mind talking about the, the woman who helped him learn how to read. I know that that was forbidden. Sophia Auld, uh, who was his slave mistress, she actually, I guess, uh, helped him with the lettering. But what's fascinating is Douglas even references in his last autobiography that his mother was one of the uh, only literate enslaved people in the actual slave community. So his own mother. Yeah, period. so okay. we suspect that he pretty much just had that intellectual bug. But uh, Sophia Auld did teach him uh, how to uh, read. Some historians will argue there might have been a, a codependency because uh, the average person who was doing the read, you know, the average person didn't know how to read back then. Mm -hmm. And the first text or canon text they would use would be the Bible. Mm -hmm. And so she probably was either, you know, she probably knew how to read or she was probably teaching herself how to read. So it might have been a codependency there. That's just one interpretation. But then sort of the conventional interpretation is, you know, she taught Mr. Douglas the letters and he took that and sort of expound on it and became an avid reader himself. Now, does she get in trouble for teaching him how to read? Uh, yes. According to Frederick Douglass, her husband, Hugh Ald, basically came in and stopped the, uh, the lesson that she was given, given him on one particular day. And she said, if you teach him how to read, you want to ruin him as an enslaved person. And that was his sort of aha moment. Mm. And he pretty much uh, took, from that point on, he uh, just devoured books. Matter of fact, one of his first books that he purchased at the age between 12 and 13 was the Columbian Orator. Is that the uh, collection of speeches? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And we have that uh, that book uh, in our collection. Oh, today, really? Yeah, okay. With his own inscriptions in it. Yeah. Did he make notes in the book? Out of all the books that we, he had, or he collected over the time, that was probably one of the only books that he did make notes, not in the margins, but on the actual uh, front and back covers. We know that that book was definitely cherished by him along with the musical hymn book, mm -hmm. The Surf. Yeah. I'll be resting when the road is closed. I'll be resting when the road is closed. I'll be resting in the pain of heaven, oh my Lord. I'll be resting when the road is closed. Is that a music box? Yes, that is a music box. So unlike our uh, MP3 players or <laughs> iPhones these days, which stores our yeah. uh, music libraries. This is where he downloaded his... Uh, exactly, right? Okay. And which unfortunately only played one tune back then. Okay. So, yeah, so. Was it a favorite tune of his? Uh, he loved um, Scottish ballads. Mm -hmm. He loved uh, old slave spirituals. Mm -hmm. And he loved uh, classical music. Yeah. And matter of fact, uh, he definitely was a man of town. And that's another interesting thing. Uh, 
not knowing about Mr. Douglas. Mr. Douglas loved to visit uh, many of the uh, theaters here in the district. Uh, he would go to the Smithsonian. He would go to the Corcoran Gallery. Uh, he would go to the Botanical Gardens. So it really shows you, you might start out in life on a lower lot, but Mr. Douglas, you really see, uh, really is a multimillionaire by the time that he passes away. So he is really the true embodiment of the rags to riches story. And was it his son? Didn't he end up being a very great fiddle player? His uh, grandson, Joseph. So if we come over here to the West Parlor, you'll see this uh, violin mm -hmm. that was actually donated by Joseph's wife, who um, donated back to the site. But this was a violin that was owned by Mr. Douglas, and Joseph took it on, and, and uh, he bequeathed it back to the site. Okay. What is that? That is an easel of Wendell Phillips. And you'll see the bust of Wendell Phillips in the corner. Okay. And speaking about that narrative that we talked about earlier, Wendell Phillips was one of the uh, gentlemen that wrote the preface to that to his oh, first okay. narrative, and he was a great uh, orator, just like Mr. Douglas. And they both admired each other. How did they meet? They met on the abolitionist uh, circuit within the circles of the abolitionist mm -hmm. movement. And what we find is Mr. Douglas, Wendell Phillips, William Lloyd Garrison really were some of the many prominent abolitionists of the time, along with Marianne Chad, who was a famous African-American woman who, who actually uh, started her own newspaper just like Mr. Douglas. Talk about the abolitionist movement, if you don't mind, because I think sometimes in school they kind of maybe dumb it down a little bit. And so the, the assumption is they existed in the North uh, unmolested, but they weren't popular even there. No, and when we think of these movements, we think they're... It's like a large population, but really it's a small minority. And what I always like to talk about is you had a small planner class and a small abolitionist class that were pretty much at each other's throat in terms of wanting to end slavery. And that, that agitation and, and those change agents uh, on the abolitionist side, really it culminates to the, up to the Civil War. Right. Yeah. I think I remember some incidents where they were just trying to maybe preach their message or even have their printing presses and then like a mob would just show up and start beating them up or throwing things. Yes, depending on who the actual uh, abolitionist was. I mean, Douglas was attacked in Indiana. Mm -hmm. uh, matter of fact, he had uh, a, a lifetime a wound or injury to his hand. And we had that uh, displayed uh, casting of that hand down in the visitor center along with his death mask. If you don't mind talking about the nuances of people's opinions, you'll, I think you would find through history that there's a lot of folks that were against slavery, they thought it was wrong, but they also didn't see the black man as equal. Yes, and so basically that, that is the idea when we look at this, and all people think they have a misnomer that all abolitionists were not prejudiced or racist, but in essence, they came from a, from a moral standpoint. No, they thought slavery was morally wrong, but many of the actual abolitionists did have prejudices, um, just like a person that probably wanted to uh, keep slavery intact. Matter of fact, uh, Maria Chapman, who is over in this room here, you'll see a plate here, and she was the prime example of, of what you're trying to get at, where they probably sort of saw African-American culture itself, they undervalued and marginalized it. Mm -hmm. yeah. And did they make a distinction between the culture and you know the physical human being? Did yes, and you'll see the rise of um, what we deem as sort of back then quack anthropology or ethnography, but uh, what we find is sort of phrenology in terms of studying uh, the different sides of brains of different ethnic groups and uh, making you know sort of general sweeping of statements about the culture as well as you know who was human and what who was inferior or superior. Right. 
I think I remember it's, uh, Charles Darwin had those yes, views. Yes. That he was against slavery, mm -hmm. but he still thought they were on a lower rung. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. very um, poignant and really gets at the heart of who Mr. Douglas was is his actual study. And this is where Mr. Douglas would spend uh, six hours a day uh, drafting speeches, answering correspondence, reading and reflecting on the leading issues of the day, which would have been the period that's just coming out of uh, Reconstruction. Uh, so uh, a lot of the uh, grandfather clauses and the uh, rise of the lynchings and the quote-unquote sort of the genesis of the nadir period as Rayford Logan would say for the African-American uh, experience coming out of the Civil War and Reconstruction era. What was his opinion of, the, of Reconstruction at least how it was executed? Uh, well he was actually a change agent within in the during the period but then once he had time to reflect on Reconstruction and how the ebbs and flows of it I think when he reflected back on it he really sort of looked at it as being sort of a fraudulent time period because the period had so much promise, but uh, with the quote-unquote um, pushback of the old planter class, uh, the red shirts, uh, particularly in the South, it really uh, sort of uh, jaded Mr. Douglas mm -hmm. in terms of his, his uh, overall uh, conclusion about that period. You want to talk about Abe Lincoln? Okay. okay. Well, first of all, how did they end up on each other's radar? The slavery topic brought them together in many essences, uh, where we know that uh, President Lincoln uh, morally thought slavery was wrong, but he really was sort of a nationalist and he didn't want to break up the Union over that issue. So if he could have saved slavery intact, he probably would have, you know, did that. As a matter of fact, he also had a colonization plan and he always felt that the average African-American at that time, a person of African descent, would never get a fair shake in the nation. And so that was the reason why they were basically coming up with these sort of colonization schemes. About and, like sending to Liberia. Yeah, sending to Liberia, mm -hmm. uh, right down to um, Latin America. Where Frederick Douglass comes in at is he's actually a recruiter. Matter of fact, the document that we have here on the desk is directly connected with uh, President uh, Lincoln as well as Frederick Douglass because as a recruiter for the Department of Interior, Frederick Douglass had to carry around this very uh, document that allowed him to travel freely to recruit African-Americans for uh, the 54th Massachusetts Regiment or up in the New England area. So you'll see Abraham Lincoln's signature here, uh, right there. So basically it was a personal pass from the president. Yes. That's great. Yes. Mr. Douglas, uh, being a man of uh, letters and, and he, I mean, he had a, a genius of a mind. I mean, he was mm -hmm. a tremendous intellect. So. Mm -hmm. This room really captures the essence of that, where you see numerous books. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what makes up the collection, is uh, Mr. Douglas's uh, library. Uh, he owned about, close to about 3,000 books, and uh, it ranged from different subject matter. Uh, he loved literature, he loved science, he loved history, uh, he loved uh, congressional histories. Now, to back up, you had talked about how Lincoln had one view initially, that Douglas changed his mind. I would think so. I, th I think interacting with Douglas, it really would change his perception of what he probably had of African-Americans. I mean, even though he had 
um, African-Americans uh, working in and around, probably in his ear at the White House, like William Slade, mm -hmm. and I think a gentleman by the name of Johnson, who was his body man. Uh, he had those interactions, but I, th I think seeing a Douglas and Henry Holland Garnett and other um, prominent African-Americans who were just as uh, intellectually tuned with him, I, I think it really changed his mind and perception of how to view, quote-unquote, the African-American at the time. So. Right. What was Douglas's view of, of the recolonization? Uh, he was definitely not uh, for it uh, because he felt like, you know, his ancestry dated all the way back to the 17, you know, 17, 1800s here in this country. So he just, he felt like he had much as ownership of the nation than any, you know, white or black man in, in, right. in the nation. Great men never agree on everything. Mm -hmm. Did Lincoln and Douglas ever sharply disagree on things? Yes, I, I think a lot of the disagreement um, happened when uh, Lincoln was pushing for the presidency. And then once he became president, he definitely felt like Lincoln wasn't moving fast enough mm -hmm. uh, in terms of ending the institution of slavery. But when he wrote the uh, preliminary and the Emancipation Proclamation, we do know that Douglas was very ecstatic, and um, he talks about that uh, that big celebration uh, in a church on that night. Um, it was def definitely a joyous occasion. What was his view on the occasional like slave revolts that were happening in the states? Uh, it's interesting you say that because Douglas, he definitely was a great admirer of uh, Sinke, who led the Amistad mutiny. Mm -hmm. He actually wrote a novel mirroring that actual, like a slave mutiny mm -hmm. and uh, the heroic slave. So he was definitely, um, as a matter of fact, he had uh, Solomon Northrop's book, The 20 Years of Slave. Mm -hmm. uh, but in terms of uh, slave mutinies, a good example to really get at that was the John Brown story. Yeah. So the John Brown story, in essence, he, I don't think Douglas really would have physically carried out or led a slave insurrection. Uh, he wanted to use an institution such as the military to bring down the walls of slavery, opposed to committing treason, an act of treason, as he thought John Brown did. And he definitely disagreed with John Brown. Uh, but what's fascinating is he still was associated with John Brown. But you'll see a lot of reminiscences of John Brown here yeah. at home. So he definitely was a great admirer of John Brown. Matter of fact, this cane here is wood that was made out of John Brown's home. Oh, wow. Yeah, and he was gifted that in 1882. Yeah. We're going to transition into the dining room, which is the largest room of the home. Uh, this is a poignant room in many ways because if you think about it, Douglas, as an enslaved person growing up on that plantation, he had to fight for any food that he could uh, receive. And he even talks about uh, enslaved people, which is very uh, dehumanizing, eating out of a trough. Mm -hmm. So here's a man that had this large Victorian dining room where he could actually entertain guests from all walks of life uh, here in the local community of Anacostia to foreign dignitaries. Mm -hmm. And by the time that he would move here, he was the United States Marshal then he would become the recorder of deeds of the District of Columbia and then the general council minister to Haiti. So we see that he is basically uh, entertaining uh, guests from all walks of life. Now he had servants. So right. he definitely had paid caretakers. He had a, a stagecoach driver by the name of York. But many of the quote-unquote paid caretakers or people that worked here in, in the home were pretty much either a friend of the family 
or considered to be family. Particularly, one particular story would have been his oldest daughter, Rosetta, her husband, Nathan. His sister used to work on and off for the family. Matter of fact, stayed here. And uh, but when Mr. Douglas remarried, uh, you know, in 1883-84 to a second wife, Miss Helen Pitts Douglas. She was white, and that created a controversy, to say the least. Mm-hmm. She actually resigned out of protest, and she actually sued Mr. Douglas of warning back wages. Wow. And uh, Mr. Douglas often communicated with his visitors through the furnishings, through the artwork. Uh, Mr. Douglas was a conscious collector in many, in many ways. And I say that the uh, furnishings act as sort of this meta-language or these tangible proofs to give us some insight on who he was, right? You see a right. lot of the... The paintings on the wall uh, represented either rustic rural areas, mm-hmm. right down to livestock, to waterways. And when I um, wrote an article on Douglas, it, I sort of pointed these things out and sort of interpreted a lot of these artworks on the wall here. You, you figured like every day of his life he was trying to prove himself to people that still had a, a lower opinion of blacks. Absolutely. Right down to his uh, still daguerreotypes and imagery mm-hmm. and photographs. He felt like pictures and images of photographs were the equalizers because the pictures don't lie. And it sort of overturns the mis, uh, over-exaggerations of stereotypes of African Americans at the time. And I think he did that, carried that same idea, even with his quote-unquote uh, furnishings and accoutrements that we see uh, here inside the home. Because if you didn't know Mr. Douglas' story and you walked inside the home and you took a look at just sort of observed each and every room, there was no way that the first thing would come to your mind as a formerly enslaved person mm-hmm. would have lived here or owned this home. Yeah, right. So we're gonna transition into the pantry. So what we see is Mr. Douglas having the wherewithal and money to actually add on to the property. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the historic structure, so from, it transitions from wood to brick from this point on. So these are the additions. Oh, okay. Yeah, and uh, so you have a pantry here a catch-all room, so the ice box uh, was purchased from Sears and Roebuck. Mm-hmm. I've heard that. And uh, Mr. Douglas uh, definitely was a Victorian gentleman, as I stated earlier. Uh, we can see that uh, he purchased two bottles of wine from Bordeaux, France, five years prior to his death, uh, even though he did support the uh, temperance uh, movement. So we proceed down. Uh, this is the catch-all room, so this room would have been closed off. So, matter of fact, from the dining room to the front door, that would have been closed off to any uh, formal guest. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you would have had access to this, it indicated that you knew the family in an intimate uh, fashion. He did have the water source inside the home, which is the cistern, which wow. collected rainwater. And, that was pretty upscale. Uh, yes, yes. And uh, the home itself, in terms of the magnitude of the home uh, and its structure, we're talking about 6,300 square footage altogether. Uh, the kitchen, he actually added the kitchen on to the home which demonstrated the uh, wealth and affluency. So before kitchens were outside, in a separate outside. building. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. And um, what's fascinating is even just like the kitchen and dining room, uh, here's a man that started out in a one-room, cold, drafty, small structure to own, owning this large home. We're going to transition up to the informal set of steps into the trunk room. So this is where Douglas kept many of his traveling trunks. Mr. Douglas definitely was a world traveler. He was a citizen of the world by the time he lived here. Uh, he was already well established. And he probably had already traveled almost every continent except but Asia. 
And it goes back to the evolution of the man. I mean, here's a man that started out on a plantation. His life and lot was supposed to be contained on that plantation. But here's a man that would acquire a passport and be able to travel to almost every country. Yeah. Now, he, you said he was ambassador to Haiti. Uh, what were some memorable achievements for him or experiences he might have had in Haiti? Just uh, interacting with the people uh, of Haiti. I know the people adored him. Um, matter of fact, uh, they actually gave him, as a well wish, gave him a uh, rocking chair. We have that in our collection today. Uh, but he actually brought uh, one of his um, former mentees, which was uh, Ebenezer Bassett, who was the first African-American diplomat. He accompanied uh, Douglas with him on his travels to Haiti. And uh, he actually admired the people of Haiti as well as the slave insurrection that, uh, that pretty much led to their independence. While he was over there, he actually wrote one of the earliest books on the rebellion. David was a shepherd boy. He killed Goliath and shouted for joy. David, play on your heart. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. David, play on your heart. Hallelujah. Back to the Victorian moorings of the time, you have the gentleman side of the home, the gentle lady side of the home. This room here, which is the ladies' guest chamber or guest bedroom, is connected to the grandkids' room. This room here is connected to Miss Anna Marie Douglas's room. And then Mr. Douglas's second wife, after Miss Anna Marie Douglas would pass away, everything would uh, be roped off as a shrine to her. And nobody could actually enter this room, so this was her room here. And then uh -huh. Mr. Douglas uh, remarried to Miss Helen Pitts Douglas, and she occupied this space. And you can see her, her uh, shoes, mm -hmm. hairpins there. If you don't mind talking about both of his wives a little bit. I would say both of his wives were very uh, critical to Mr. Douglas' success. Uh, his first wife, Miss Anna Marie Douglas, actually acted as a conductor on the Underground Railroad and aided Mr. Douglas in his quest of becoming his own master. Mm -hmm. uh, she actually would help him escape by sell selling some of her own belongings, such as a feather bed, uh, for him to actually escape from Baltimore and finally make his way up to uh, New York, and then they would make the way to uh, New England. So she was a free woman? Or yes, she yeah. was, and we always said that Mr. Douglas married up. <laughs> and then uh, she was definitely his quote-unquote uh, rock for 44 years, and he often said that she was the pillar of, of the household. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Mr. Douglas remarried to Miss Helen Pitts Douglas. She was very uh, instrumental in his success in terms of after his death, she would actually establish the Frederick Douglass Memorial Historical Association. They were partnering with the National Association of Color Women's Clubs and they will preserve the home all the way up until 1962. And so it really turns the old adage upside down. It's not about the women behind the man. In many instances, I would say that it's the uh, man behind the women mm -hmm. in terms of Mr. Douglas's case. Right. You had said there was some controversy uh, when he married his second wife, who was white. Obviously, some in the white community weren't happy, I'm sure, but... Even in the African-American community, they were pretty much blasted. I mean, you know, uh, they were both were pretty much demonized in the white and black press. Right. Uh, particularly the uh, white press, Douglas, they saw him as sort of a nefarious Solomon. And uh, you even had uh, senators and congressmen trying to uh, outlaw uh, interracial marriage here in the District of Columbia, but being a district. Wow. in a federal uh, district. But did that hurt his uh, ability to, to sway other people? In the African-American community, we do know that one particular newspaper uh, said that, you know, on this day at this time, we're going we're to all turn our 
uh, images of Frederick Douglass in our homes backwards. So, uh, Odd question. He, he comes off as very serious. Did he have a sense of humor? Oh, absolutely. He was definitely a jovial and uh, joking uh, gentleman in many ways. And you saw that side, that intimate side of him here inside the home. Uh, he had the, the stoic exterior when he would leave uh, the property, especially taking you know, photographs. But for the most part, the way he engaged his grandkids, he loved his grandkids. He would often give them piggyback rides downstairs in the West Parlor, the informal living room, which we deem as the den. Um, and he often would uh, play instruments, play his violin. You know, he loved to tell jokes. Uh, he definitely was sort of the man's man of the time period. He loved boxing. Uh, he loved horse racing. So he was definitely a sporty type of gentleman. Uh, one in interesting story that captures the essence of who Mr. Douglas was in terms of as a man and his love of country. Matter of fact, uh, there was a reporter that came here that knocked on the door. And the reporter basically was stunned because he kept hearing a violin being played. And when it finally began to get louder, the door opened. It was Mr. Douglas with violin in hand playing a rendition of the Star Spangled Banner. Yeah, so the house itself, um, the original structure was built between 1855 and 1860. The, First owner of the home was John Van Hook, who actually developed this area, which became known as Uniontown. Then Mr. Douglas would acquire the property uh, with that purchase of $6,700 from the Freedman Savings and Trust Company, which he used to be the former bank, uh, president of the bank. And uh, Mr. Douglas would live here uh, for his last 17 years, so from, from 1877 up until his death until 1895. And then Miss Helen Pitts Douglas uh, would live here. She'd be the last person uh, to live here and, and pass away, which was in 1903. And then she established the Frederick Douglass Memorial Historical Association. They partnered with the National Association of Color Women's Clubs. And everything was bequeathed or turned over or gifted to the National Park Service in 1962 under the Kennedy administration. As the National Park Service, we have tremendous uh, honor to uh, be the stewardess and preservationists of this home for eternity. So. <laughs> That's something that's lesser known of Mr. Douglas is Mr. Douglas loved to play croquet. He would have uh, a lot of croquet matches mm -hmm. out here on uh, on site, and uh, he loved to uh, show uh, his visitors and his guests uh, his uh, orchards, his uh, a lot of his plants that he planted. Uh, Mr. Douglas planted a lot of trees himself here on the property, and uh, when he wanted to sort of get away from it all, uh, he had the growlery. Uh, which is over here to our left. And it was his sort of, what we deem it today as a man cave. This is where he would write and reflect, engage nature, solitude in many ways. Okay, it's a little building. Okay. So his wife wasn't allowed in here? Basically, yeah, it was, uh, the rumor or the uh, urban legend was any uh, female guests, in order for them to enter into the uh, rivalry, they had to give him a kiss on the cheek. Oh, that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> and so inside, is there anything left of his? Uh, no, but we restaged it. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we, we really wanted this to uh, become sort of a reflecting and thinking space. Uh -huh. uh, since Douglas was a writer and great orator, 
uh, we really wanted guests when they came here because a lot of guests and visitors see themselves as sort of making a journey or a pilgrimage or a mecca here to mm -hmm. the site. So, so we staged it. Okay. So there was a desk mm -hmm. and a couch, and uh, Mr. Douglas often had the the logs uh, burning in winter months. At the close of our tour, Mr. McLaren led us out through the front door, which overlooks our nation's capital, and as well as into the state of Maryland, where Mr. Douglas began his life into this world. Mr. Douglas, as you know, was born on a plantation over to our right there. The house sits in the middle, very fittingly, and you, you can see the actual halls of Congress, uh, or the dome of, of uh, Congress, uh, of the Capitol, over to our left. So you can sort of chart that transition from slavery to freedom from uh, right to left. So. so he chose this site to kind of get a good look at everything. Yes, yeah. well he said that from, you know, from this vantage point, uh -huh. he can actually keep his eye on, on Congress. We'd like to give our thanks to our gracious and accommodating host, Mr. McLaren, and the National Park Service. And we hope you can stop by and take a look for yourself if you're ever in the D.C. area. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile podcast is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram using the name Spun Counter Guy. Be sure to download the new Podbean app to hear this podcast and others on your tablet and smartphone. And we are now on iTunes. Just do a search for Back by the Woodpile on the iTunes store and we should pop up. And a special thanks to thebrofisticate.com. Everybody talk about heaven and it's going to heaven. Heaven, 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 heaven,